0: Today's Bible reading is from Isaiah 11, the branch from Jesse. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will grow fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and the and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four corners, quarters of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish, and Judah's enemies will be destroyed. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile toward Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. Together they will plunder the people to the east. They will subdue Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will be subject to them. The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea. With the scorching wind, he will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that anyone can cross over in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria as there was for Israel when they came out from Egypt.
1: Good morning, church family. It's my pleasure to bring God's Word to us this morning, and so please join with me as I pray. Our heavy Father, as we've already sung this morning of you as our great King and your kingdom, we want to praise you and give you the glory. Father, as we come and open your Word now today, I pray, Lord, that your Spirit would work amongst us. ...as we continue to consider you as our king. I pray, Lord, that despite what's going on in this world... ...that we would know comfort knowing that you are king of over all and over us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So over the past 2,000 years, as we uh, yeah, consider our text this morning... ...I first want to begin by thinking about the history of Christianity... Uh, Since the birth of the church, Christianity has spread in a phenomenal way. It's been short, nothing short of miraculous, I'd say. A bit like wildfire spreading. The Christian message has spread to every continent. Whole nations and governments have been shaped by the Bible. No matter the culture or local context, whether in a village or in the city, democratic or communistic, Asian or Australian rich or poor, in persecution or prosperity. There are no people or people groups that are inherently immune from the power of the gospel message. And yet for us here today, in our corner of the world, on the surface, Christianity and the Christian worldview seems to be waning and in decline. There seems to be a clash A war of two worlds beginning to stir and boil up to the surface. As each census passes here in Australia, less and less than people identify themselves as Christian. In its place, there's a rise of an atheistic worldview. A worldview centered around the individual rather than God. A worldview that seeks to unshackle itself from the chains of religion that has supposedly held us back for so many years. By doing so, this worldview wants to promise real freedom, true self-fulfillment and satisfaction, all devoid of a faith in God. As uh, we consider this war of two worlds, evidence of this war can be seen in some of the recent laws being uh, sought to be passed in our country. I think about the federal government's uh, Religious Discrimination Bill, seeking somewhat to safeguard religious freedoms in this country. And yet, at the very same time as this law is seeking to be passed, in Victoria, there's another law being passed that seeks to curb some of religious rights for schools and organisations and how they hire and retain staff, whether or not they're able to hold and maintain to Christian beliefs behaviour. Of course, another area that this war reveals itself is the area of sexuality. There have been reports uh, of many parents in numerous countries, including at least one here in WA, who have lost custody of their child because they do not wish to affirm hormone or sex change medical treatment or the like. Rather than it being legally permissible to hold to the biblical understanding that gender, either male or female, is given from conception by God, uh, the world today views such an idea as discriminatory and harmful. Even Christmas itself would seem to be now controversial. Uh, In New South Wales, uh, Richard Glover, an ABC radio host, he recently interviewed uh, a Bible scholar about the message of, of Christmas, about the birth of Jesus. And he wanted to explore with this Bible, college, uh, this Bible scholar what the four Gospels just said about the birth of Jesus, the birth narrative. And after which, uh, apparently he was inundated with hate messages, all because he dared to discuss such a topic on air, you know, as we are just a few, ways, a few days away from Christmas. And he wasn't even presenting the gospel message in this little segment. He was simply discussing some of the literary features of the birth narrative. So as Christianity then in the West uh, it continues to be shut down and pushed to the fringe, for us here today, I, I, you would, might be forgiven for quietly perhaps even questioning God. I wonder if you've done this. And ask God, God, what are you doing? What what are you doing? Are you at work? Or maybe you're not a Christian here today, and you're thinking, well, why would I actually want to be a Christian now today yourself? In the lead-up to Christmas, this week we're continuing to explore some really rich Old Testament passages that speak of this coming Messiah. Last week we uh, saw Jesus come through in Isaiah 9. And today we get to explore another rich passage and prophecy here in Isaiah 11. In our present spiritual climate here in the Western world, the prophecy before us in Isaiah 11 is a timely reminder of God's sure promises to his people. God's truth here is like a firm bedrock that provides a firm footing for us to stand on and become unshakable. If indeed you hold on to these promises by faith, so as we consider our passage this morning, what I really want to just explore is is the, is the obvious that this coming king that we see in the first nine verses. so we want to explore this coming king as we explore this coming king this morning, what I want to first investigate together with you. Is the nature of his person. According to these verses here, who is he and what is he really like? Straight away, we see the first description in verse 1. If you have your Bibles with you, have a look at verse 1. It speaks of the Messiah here as this little shoot, this little branch that grows from the stump and the roots of a tree that has been cut down. For us to understand and begin to understand this metaphor, it's helpful for us just to understand what's come just before in the book of Isaiah so far. As I mentioned last week, Israel at this time was facing a dire threat of invasion from Assyria to the north. At the end of chapter 10, in verses 33 to 34, the nation of Assyria and its army is depicted like this thick, mighty forest. But as mighty as this forest looked, God was eventually going to cut it down with terrifying power. But for now, in the face of this thick forest, this danger looming, Isaiah turns his attention to Israel and the messianic family line of King David, the son of Jesse. Because of their unfaithfulness to God, Israel was about to become like a tree, cut, a stump would remain in the face of this mighty sea and forest that was Assyria. As we consider such opposition and imminent danger, such things can cause God's people to tremble with fear and for us to lose hope. In fact, this is what was happening at the time, just a few chapters before in Isaiah 7, verse 2. It says here, it says, Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. And so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of a forest are shaken by the wind. I mean, can you imagine yourself what Israel felt here as they cowered in fear with this threat coming their way? I mean, can you really imagine it? If you were there, knowing that danger was on your doorstep. I wonder if perhaps you in your own life has, have ever been shaken before. I wonder if you have had your faith rocked to the core. Like having someone rip out the carpet from under you and turning your world upside down. In difficult times... It's easy to lose your faith or to be shaken in your faith. But despite this coming threat, all hope was not lost. A holy stump would remain. This metaphor of stump actually occurred back in Isaiah 6 for the first time. There, it was a message of judgment. But even in that message of judgment, there's this glimmer of hope. In Isaiah 6, verse 11 to 13, it says, Then I said, For how long, Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But. As the terebinth and oak leave stumps, when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. You see, even though the kingdom of Israel was about to be reduced to a stump, there was still life in it. Back in our passage in Isaiah 11, this, from this stump, this little shoot, this branch, the Messiah would shoot forth. This reminded me of a tree stump that we once had at my home. Uh, despite this tree being cut down when we first moved in, uh, this stump in the root system of this tree remained. And it would just constantly sprout forth these shoots. I tried multiple times to kill it, and it just would just keep growing back. Eventually, I, I had to just rip it all out of the ground, because it just kept sprouting again. It's a bit of a picture here, then, what the Messiah is like. He's one of these little shoots that begins to grow and blossom, bringing forth new, new life and God's kingdom. It's helpful for us, to, as we consider our passage, to also ask, why is this Messiah so special, then? What is so special about this little shoot? Our passage has a strong emphasis on the Spirit of God, and how the God Spirit was upon him. In verse 2, there's this seven, uh, and verse 3, I believe, this sevenfold description of the Spirit of God working upon the Messiah. He was rested upon him, the Spirit full of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. In Scripture, the number seven often means complete or total, and so this Messiah enjoys the complete power and presence of God in carrying out his kingship. Uh, the Spirit often worked like this in the Old Testament. We think of Israel's history. Perhaps you could think of the judges, Othniel, Jephthah, or Samson, or otherwise. The Spirit would come upon them and work mightily at times. And in a similar way, it's the same with Messiah. The Messiah. But unlike all those other Old Testament figures, this Messiah was perfect, without fault or sin, and he enjoyed the fullness of the Spirit. As we open up our pages of the New, our New Testaments, this Messiah is declared to be no other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All four Gospels speak about how Jesus the Holy Spirit came upon him in his baptism, like a dove from heaven. Jesus confirms this himself in Luke four seventeen to twenty one, where he quotes Isaiah sixty one. There it reads: In the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him to Jesus. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. It is written, "The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor." He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue was fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And so, the first thing that our passage confronts us with today is with the person who fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy. This spirit empowered king. And as this spirit empowered king, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world? The gospel message, first and foremost, foremost calls us to believe in a person, Jesus. Not to put our hope in any earthly king or kingdoms, politicians, pastors, community leaders, or business people. They will all fail us somehow. We need this ultimate king. Verses 1-9 to though, not only speak of this person, they also speak of the Messiah's rule. And so I want to just look at a few moments for a few moments, what is the nature of his rule as shown in these verses? I think what it first shows us is that the kingdom of God and and the Messiah's rule, although it begins small, it will grow and grow into something wonderful. In Matthew 13, Jesus speaks this following parable. In verse 31 to 32, it says... He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds. But when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. You know, although during his life at times Jesus had large Crowds flocked to him. In the grand scheme of things, during his life, Jesus didn't seem to actually achieve all that much when you think about it. He certainly didn't have a whole throng or nation following him like a Roman emperor at the time. All he had was 12 disciples, and all his disciples abandoned him when he went to the cross. Even John the Baptist, who had a special job of preparing the way for Jesus to come in his ministry, when he was imprisoned, he had doubts. And he said, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? But what seemed insignificant, what started small, has steadily been growing and ripening ever since. Since the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit has been poured out on God's people and continues to be poured out throughout the world as his disciples are multiplied throughout all the nations. As Christianity continues to be pushed then to the margins here in the West, our passage is a reminder that Jesus is still king. And the judge who sits on the throne, no matter what Satan throws against his church, God's church. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said to his apostle Peter, his disciple Peter, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. In verses 3 to 9, G, uh, Christ's rule is, is also described as one full of righteousness and equity, like a belt that he has around his waist. This rule, then, is one that, where hostility no longer exists. In verses 6 to 8, animals who were once carnivorous predators now live beside their prey in harmony. What are we to make of these verses? While interpreting them, I think it's important to understand how this poetic language is being uh, said from the standpoint of an Israelite villager. Unlike our modern day large cities that are full of cement and steel, uh, we have to try, it's very hard for us, we have to try and remember, remember that Israel was an agrarian society full of agriculture. They lived off the land. Lions, wolves, bears, snakes. These were all predators that an Israelite villager faced that threatened not only their lives, but their livelihood, their livestock. And so Isaiah pictures a time when all of these dangers from these animals towards human civilization will be one day nullified. The fundamental problem why this hostility exists according to verse 9, is because the earth lacks the knowledge of the Lord. Isaiah looks forward to a day when the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. Despite how much Western culture turns its back on God, here is a promise that one day the knowledge of the Lord will be perviant through everything. Do you believe that? It's important for us to understand what Isaiah means here by knowledge. It's not so much head knowledge as if you're an expert in a particular field or topic. But it's rather knowledge that is experienced. A working, practical knowledge of something. When it comes to the knowledge of God, this knowledge means knowing God personally. His love, faithfulness, righteousness, mercy and His grace. This is what faith in the Messiah is all about experiencing God Fellow Christian do you know this experience yourself Today are you comforted by God's presence in your heart Despite what's going around uh, what's going on around you and in the world today As our risen Savior who reigns from heaven, this is what Jesus promises for his church. In John 14, 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So that's this coming king, this Messiah, this great king that Isaiah prophesies about. As we turn to the second half of our passage this morning, the focus turns away a little bit from this king and focuses a bit more on those who gather gather around this king. Those who gather around the king. So as we explore this in verse 10 to 16 the first thing I I want to ask and explore with you is, how does this happen? How does God gather his people around himself? In verse 10, the Messiah, this root of Jesse, is described as a banner. In verse 12, this banner is raised up before the nations of the earth, calling people to himself. What does this banner mean? In John 12, 32, Jesus declared and said, I and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. On the cross, Jesus was lifted up. In the shock and horror of the cross, Jesus draws all his people to himself. The cross and his resurrection is the place where we meet God because it's there that Jesus opened up the way to God. The curtain of the temple was torn. And so, the message of the gospel and the cross, what is foolish, that is foolish to the world and disdainful. And yet, in that, God declares that his banner and says, Come here, meet me here. And this happens today by us being receptive to the gospel message. Back in verse 4, Jesus is said to rule and judge by his word. As king, God in Christ calls all to submit to him and his kingship and hearken to the gospel message. In Mark 1, 14-15, at the start of Jesus' ministry, it says this, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel." And so perhaps if you are not here, uh, a Christian here today with us, this is what God's call to you is, to hearken to the gospel, to believe in Christ's death and resurrection for salvation, and to repent, confess that you're a sinner in need of grace. By doing so, God will remove that judgment of sin that looms over you and grant you his loving presence. But also for every Christian, that is where we go to experience more of God. We need to go back to the cross and see it afresh. This is because in Second Peter 3.18, he says, For us to do that is to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Every Christian today needs to hear the gospel too. And so that's how that God then gathers his people to himself. Through the cross, through the gospel message. Just briefly, we want to also just see what Isaiah says about who. Who is included here? In verse 10, it says there that the nations will inquire of this banner. Showing that it's not only Israel who is included amongst God's people. Today in our world, there are so many different types of people, different people groups, cultures and nations. Uh, if you have a passport, one of the ways that you're primarily identified is the country of your birth, where you have your citizenship. But when it comes to God and his kingdom, there are really only two options. Either to be a Christian who belongs to Jesus, or to reject Jesus as king and to remain in the kingdom of darkness. This is why, in Philippians three twenty, Paul says of Christians that our citizenship is in heaven with Jesus. So that's how. That's who. Let's look at when. When does this gathering of God's people truly occur? Throughout these verses, Israel is described as this remnant who's being who will be recovered those who are banished and dispersed will one day be assembled verses 11 15 and 16 kind of hints at this second exodus another deliverance of God's people just like the day of Egypt in verse 16 there speaks of this highway from Assyria back to the land for the remnant people While this certainly was partially fulfilled for the Jews when they returned from exile after the Babylonian invasion, something that occurred even later. But once again, its ultimate fulfillment is found in the cross. The true exodus where God in Christ secured salvation for us, saving us from our spiritual slavery to sin. But while it's true that our salvation is secured... This gathering still has not fully happened and won't until Jesus returns one day. Revelation 7 speaks uh, of this wonderful gathering of God's people. Verse 9 to 10, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and excuse me and crying out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our god who sits on the throne and to the lamb that is our final gathering that we look forward to until this final gathering though god's people we continue to be scattered throughout the earth as god's elect sojourners and exiles as the apostle peter would tell us But we are not scattered. We are not left here without purpose. Again, back in verse 4, it speaks of God's word and the power of his word. And as Christians, as we are today, we gather together around God's word as we encounter Jesus afresh in the preaching of his word. But also, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we are Christ's messengers and heralds. We have the purpose of going out and scattering, furthering God's kingdom amongst the nations. Just a few verses on in Isaiah 12, 4. It says, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim his name, uh, that his name is exalted. Matthew 28, at the end of Matthew's gospel it says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I, commanded, I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We are not without purpose today as we await the final coming of our king. As we consider this final gathering one day of God's people, Isaiah 11:13 once again speaks of this hostility that will end. That will be the result of it. This time the hostility in view is is hostility between people. That verse there describes two estranged tribes, Ephraim and Judah who are not united and one day will be. As our society continues to be fractured then today between different beliefs, people, groups, and issues, the answer never is more community consultation. True unity and the end of human hostility can only come under the banner of our raised-up king. Submitting to Jesus' rule and living in his kingdom. Until Jesus comes again, we shouldn't be surprised if hostility persists in our world. It will persist as long as the kingdom of darkness persists and is finally one day put to rest, finally, by Jesus. So, fellow Christian are you shaken by where society is headed this day? As we head into the Christmas season and the year beyond, our passage is a firm reminder that Christ is king. His kingdom is an unstoppable kingdom. No matter how much pushback it might experience in the present. Just like that stump that's sprouted. The kingdom of God will just keep on showing signs of life and flourish. Sometimes in quite unexpected ways. And although we are scattered throughout the world, God will one day bring all his people together in perfect harmony, free of all hostility, and grant us perfect peace. All under the perfectly wise and mighty king. This spirit-empowered king. Until then, proclaim Christ our banner. Proclaim our risen king to the nations who died on a cross to save lowly sinners like you and me. Make disciples of all the nations, inviting others to come and be citizens of heaven too. Finally, if you have not seriously considered Christ as your king, This is an opportunity for you to do that, to consider what it means to be part of his kingdom, to repent of your sin, to believe in him and join his unstoppable kingdom, to come and experience the God of the universe and his kingdom. Are you open to that? Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we want to just thank you afresh for the gospel message as we head into the Christmas season, Lord, and reflect again on the meaning of what, why you came, Lord, why you came into this world, how you came to save us and be this king that we need. Father, as we reflect on what our passage says about who you are and what does it mean to be in your kingdom and what your kingdom is like. Father, I pray that your spirit would encourage us and embolden us to proclaim your name. Father, we confess that at times we can be discouraged as we looked out into the world and experienced the kingdom of darkness. Father, I pray that your spirit would empower us, that it would be poured out on us this day. That we would be faithful witnesses for you. And be emboldened to speak Jesus to our neighbors. Despite what others might think of us. Despite of what the rest of the culture might think of Christianity. Father, I pray that uh, you might grant us a fresh experience of you this morning. Of your grace, of your mercy, of your love. We thank you that you didn't leave us destitute in our sins. But you came and saved us. Father, I pray that we would hold on to our citizenship in heaven, knowing that that is where our true identity lies. And may we know the comfort of your presence and peace this day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.